Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, everybody. Tina Brock, Producing Artistic Director here at the Idiopathic Radiculopathy Consortium in Philadelphia. I'm your host for Into the Absurd, a virtually existential dinner conversation. I do hope you'll join us the next 50 minutes. Sit back and relax as we explore the lives, the hearts, the minds, and the spirits of creators in Philadelphia region and around the world. And good afternoon to you. Coming to you virtually today from Bryant Park in New York City, which will figure into my conversation with actress, comedian, and multi-talented woman improviser who has been making her career in theater here in Philadelphia and New York City and around the world for many, many years. That's Sharon Geller, and we'll get to talking with Sharon in just a couple of minutes. Welcome to you from Erica Holscher and Bob Schmidt and myself. Very happy to have you here, and we invite you to put your questions in the chat for Sharon Geller. We're going to talk about improvisation and the ways in which Sharon is using her multi-talents to uh, bring spontaneity to the world. I've been so privileged to know Sharon, both as an actress working beside her on shows many, many, many years ago. As an actress in a number of different shows, and also uh, just as a partner uh, during the pandemic in walking daily and discussing the ways in which we can all make it through the pandemic, or at least the two of us, we covered a lot of topics. Not the least was which of which was our desire to return back onto the stage. So um, it's been a joy and a pleasure to be able to have that daily walk to contemplate, and I'm very excited to have her on the show. Just a little bit of a heads up about what's happening for the IRC. We sort of alluded uh, throughout the months here, the last oh gosh. Uh, 12 plus months, uh, what we're going to be doing or what we're thinking about when we come back out onto the stage. And it's looking like it's going to be 2022. At this point, we are searching for a venue and have several different uh, options on the table. And we're looking at a play by Tennessee Williams, a play by Enda Walsh, and uh, a play by Samuel Beckett. So the IRC is still intact, and we're going to be coming back. We're going to be looking ahead the next couple of months to see um, just exactly what that timing will be, and we'll let you know. So we can't wait to be back on the stage with you and sharing the work that we so love to do. And it's been a joy and a pleasure to be here with you uh, in the meantime. And then we'll be able to use the show to be able to talk about the work that is happening. And that's our plan. So we are looking forward to having you as a part of that. Sharon Geller, wow, Sharon has been working for decades and I love her story about working in public relations and then deciding that she wanted to pursue her love of acting and comedy is her thing. It's near and dear to her heart and she has, like no one else I know, been able to parlay that into a career and into a a, a corporate moguldom that Sharon has, an entertainment business and She teaches acting to lawyers, to neuroscientists, and we're going to talk to her today about improvisation and how it figures its way into her life and the lives of those who she illuminates. So Sharon Geller, welcome to Into the Absurd. Hi. Hi, lady. How are you? I'm very good. We just took our walk this morning and got to talk about all things. (laughs) 
Got it. Yeah. And I recognize your background there because it is whenever I see you on QVC, this is the background that I see you in, in your, in, and whenever you teach on Zoom and whenever you do all the many, many, many different ways in which you use your skills. So I want to start sharing, if we could, just um, just growing up for you in, you've taught, you refer to your mom and dad a lot and how important they were and your sister to, you know, your love of comedy and your being influenced by comedy. And I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a snapshot of what the early childhood influences were that led you to want to go this direction. Well, it's very boring. I had a very happy childhood. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of drama, but what I will say this is my father had a fantastic sense of humor. He was always telling jokes and I would always watch with him sitcoms. We loved watching the Carol Burnett show together. She was one of my earliest idols because of all the comedy characters she did. My father was a big fan of the Honeymooners and the Red Skelton show. And, you know, I, I'm sure it doesn't take a Freudian psychologist to know that that shared experience we had of laughter together, it, it, laughter is so powerful. It's very seductive. It's very addicting. And when you share that with someone, as I did with my dad, I, I'm sure somewhere down the line that had something to do with what I'm doing today for a living. Um, but the oddity of the whole story I just told you is, yes, I had a really happy childhood and my father was very funny, but I was the the shyest kid you ever want to meet. So the idea of being on stage was the farthest thing from my mind. And um, I remember once an article came out about me in the parade magazine section of the evening bulletin, and it was about me. And I had just started my acting career and I was in a commercial and someone called me and said, look, I just read this article about someone named Sharon Geller, who's an actor, but this can't be you, right? Because I remember you in school and you were the shyest kid. And I was like, no, that's me. So it was really weird how shy I was outside of the home. I didn't say boo, but in the home, my father and I were always dancing together, you know, had little kids do on the daddy's feet. Um, there was a lot of laughter. My sister, who was a, is a scientist, I always tell her, for a scientist, she's got a great sense of humor, which she does. But there was always a lot of uh, joyousness in the home growing up. So do you think that, that that having a great childhood and being a part of a joyful experience has influenced the kinds of comedy that you like? Do you, do you go much more for, say, yeah, like a, a Carol Burnett laugh out loud as opposed to a more satirical uh, darker, say, comedy? I definitely think I'm more Carol Burnett rooted. I mean, I went from loving Carol Burnett and her characters to Gilda Radner and her characters and Andrea Martin from SCTV. And even though some of them are subtle and some of them are over the top, I just thought, oh my God, to earn a living doing that, that looks like fun. And um, you know what they say, comedy is harder than drama. So it's, uh, it's still a challenge, no matter whether it's satirical or over the top or subtle comedy. Um, it's, it's always a challenge to play, but I think I was drawn to those big characters because of the early days of watching that with my dad. I just remember that Carol Burnett, the longest laugh she ever got in her show was when they were doing the parody of Gone with the Wind and Harvey Corman was playing Red Butler and she was Scarlett O'Hara. And I remember her coming down the staircase wearing the curtain. The curtain rod, yeah. You know, she had made the dress yeah. in the real movie from the curtain. And then uh, he says, uh, Scarlett, 
Violet, you look fetching. And she says, thank you. I saw it in the window and I just had to have it. And I remember they clocked that as being the, the longest laugh ever. So um, yeah, I think that definitely had something to do with my, me wanting to do this for a living. Do you, so what was it about, you knew about this, right? Were you, what, did you think about going to school for, for theater? I mean, no. you, you were in for communications, right? Didn't you go to Temple? Yeah, that was my way. That was my Gemini way of splitting the difference because I clearly did not think I could earn a living being an actress because I only knew about, like, you're either Merle Streep or you're unemployed. Like, there was no, no ladder, no continuum, nothing like, you know, how do you... Unless you're up there, how can you earn a living? So I took theater. I, I was interested in theater. Um, my major was public rela uh, radio, TV, and film at Temple University Communications. And my minor was journalism, which is why I ended up in public relations for 10 years. But I always thought it was something I could dabble on the side with. I never realized that I could earn a living you know, doing medical industrials or voiceovers or all the things that I've been doing. So your your focus or the the world of knowledge that you had about it was that you either were making films in a very visible way or, you know, you that that was the option, right? Which is why you didn't go. In. So what what happened in the you you get out? You're working in corporate America, working in public relations, and was it? And I'm just offering up these two theories because it's what I've heard from other people that. Did you feel well suited to, to your job? Did you feel like you enjoyed it? It's just that you thought you'd enjoy this other thing more? Oh, well, first, I loved what I did. So I first started out with a, my degree in communication as a production assistant at Center City Video. So I was having a great time there. I, I loved that whole atmosphere. Uh, then I worked in PR right after that at the uh Pennsylvania College of Podiatric Medicine. So I'd write press releases and public service announcements and book doctors on TV shows. And I love that a lot. After that, the American College of Physicians. So in that 10 year period, when I was in the corporate world, I went from loving what I was doing to not so much. And part of that transition was because during that time, my dad passed away uh, in 1985. And that was my wake up call that life is short. And I don't want to be 50 one day and say, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And I thought to myself, if I die tomorrow, am I happy doing what I'm doing? And the answer was no, because I didn't like being in an office with no windows. Uh, I just felt like I couldn't breathe at that point. And so I took a mental health day off from work. I was at my mom's house. Uh, and that morning, Friday morning, I will never forget, Phil Donahue had his talk show on. He had on six CEOs who all left their six-figure income jobs to pursue their heart's content. And I watched that show and I said, wow, I'm not making six figures and I don't even like what I'm doing. So why am I still there? So Monday morning, I went in and I gave notice because I knew if I said it, it would happen. Mm -hmm. And But I'm not a flighty kind of person. So yes, I gave notice, but I gave a month's notice. I thought, eh, if I change my mind, I don't have to. you know. But a month later, <laughs> I was gone. I was gone. And so how did you chart your course for people that might be, you know, who are having similar dreams that you did? So um, I started doing things that were related to what I wanted to do. So my big, my three biggest fears about being self-employed, you know, venturing out into this 
artsy lifestyle by myself. My three biggest fears were with no structure in my life, I thought I might sleep until noon every day, have mint chocolate chip ice cream for breakfast and watch soap operas all day long. I'm not kidding. That's what I thought, you know, because I said I have no structure. I have no one to answer to. So just to make sure those three things didn't happen, I literally would make myself get up every morning at 5.30 or 6. I'd go out for my, my breakfast at uh, on South Street. I had <laughs> like coffee and fresh fruit and whatever. I'd go to the gym to work out. And then I would do something focused on my career, like answer an audition or take an acting or register for an acting class, something so that by the time noon rolled around every day, I knew what was going on in the world. I had spoken to people and I was, you know, functioning. Uh, so that's what I did. Slowly, I started taking acting classes in New York. I studied for five years with Chicago City Limits, which is kind of like what if people who don't know, Second City is to Chicago, Chicago City Limits is to New York. Same idea. And then I started teaching an acting class at the Walnut Street Theater, uh, an acting class, and it was part acting and part uh, improvisation. So little by little, I started doing things that were more and more related to acting. Mm -hmm. Do you... When you set out initially with uh, in in your work on in improvisation, is did you did you have any idea where you were going with it? <clears throat> did you have an end end goal in mind, or did you just improvisationally put the pieces together and let the doors open where they they would? It was more like that. I had absolutely no plan. I just thought like. It, one of the things you learn in improv is to say yes and. And so I, I just kind of fell into things that kept on opening up for me. Like one of the reasons I started teaching improv for lawyers at Drexel Law School, it's not like I said, oh my God, I have to teach an improv class at a law school. A husband, wife, both lawyers team were uh, taking my improv class at the Walnut Street Theater just for fun. They called it their date night because my class is a lot of fun. And uh, one night she comes up to me five weeks into the 10 week semester. And she said, Sharon, do you have any idea that the stuff you're teaching here is exactly what I teach my students at Drexel Law School where I am director of trial advocacy? And I said, actually, I do know because I use this stuff all the time in team building in the corporate world. She said, do you want to come to my class and do some of these exercises? And I said, you tell me what you're teaching them, what your legal precepts are that you're teaching them. And I'll come up with some improv exercises that expound upon those points. So I did. They loved it. She invited me back the following week because I really loved it again. And then she said, why don't you put together a proposal and see if the dean will give you your own class? And I thought, well, that's crazy because I'm not a lawyer. Like, why would I be teaching it a lot? But yes, and... So I thought, okay, what do I have to lose? So I came up with a title called Improv for Lawyers. I put together a description and I get a call from the Dean who says, um, you don't even have to convince me about the importance of this because I used to be in an improv troupe. He says, and I know exactly what you're talking about when you say good improv skills, good legal skills, good communication skills. He said, you have your own class. And then before it started, he called me back to say, this has never happened at Drexel Law School before, but your class just crashed our computer system. So many students tried to sign up. Will you teach two classes for the overflow? And I said, sure. So it was never my dream to teach improv for lawyers, but it happened. And then that went 10 years ago, I started doing a CLE, continuing legal education, because every year lawyers have to get credits to renew their license. 
And it's called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Arbitration, Great Communication Skills for Lawyers. And so like all of these things, they kind of fell into place. But so did the auditions and the Saturday Night Live and everything else. Things kind of just opened up the more I did, the more yes ending I did, the more opportunities mm -hmm. opened up. Did you have years where, or, you know, patches of time in there where you were concerned about where they were lean years or lean months or times where you were concerned about, because to go from a full-time career to really, you know, putting it together seems like it could take some time. Yeah. Well, you're right. Um, I've never been a hand to mouth kind of person. And I've always had, like when I left that corporate job, I had a cushion, you know, I'd been yeah. in the corporate world for a while, but I also felt like it was very important for everything that I did to be related to acting. So if I wasn't performing acting, if I wasn't acting, at least I was teaching it or teaching improv. Um, I also have an entertainment company. So sometimes I get calls for whatever, murder mysteries. Um, oh, we're having a Mad Hatter party and we need a, a Queen of Hearts and we need a, or hey, it's Christmas time. The, the malls need Santa Clauses with real beards or um, elves that juggle and do magic. So I had this entertainment company going. So I was making some money on that. But yeah, everything was a crawl before you walk, walk before you run. It wasn't like at all, came at once I kind of like answered things when they happen I mean I used to face paint I mean so I that was one of the things I was doing I dress up as a clown and face paint so everything was creative I mean was it what I wanted to be doing in the end you know doing comedy characters on Saturday Night Live no I don't want I would rather do that than face painting but I mean everything was a little step towards going where I wanted to go mm -hmm. so it sounds as though when you get when you get, you know, thinking about, wow, where's my next thing going to come from? Or is this that you just put those skills together and either create something and or network and keep the door open and something just always tends to come through? Do you have, do you ever get overwhelmed where you just have too much happening? Yeah, well, you know, because I do a lot of little, a lot of things, they're all related to acting, but yeah, so the marketing, yeah, when I'm not acting, I'm marketing myself, and it is overwhelming. You have to remember to send this one a contract, you have to remember to get back to this one, but I always believe life is all about networking, and um, nothing beats being Steven Spielberg's daughter, you know, I mean, it helps to make contacts and be connected, so um, when people tell me to follow up with somebody about something, I follow up with them. I've had people say to me, um, I, I mean, I feel badly sometimes. I feel like I'm following up too much if I don't hear from them, but I kind of want to make sure unless I hear back from them that they've received my message. And people will say to me, I'm so glad you wrote me like five times. I've been so busy. I haven't had a chance to go. Yeah, I want to book your show. Knock, knock, Jews there. Tom, what a take on comedy. I want to book. And so I've actually had people say that. So I guess I shouldn't feel bad for bothering them because they're actually grateful that I've been following up. I think everybody's busy and we, we all are doing things. Everybody has different things they're busy with, but it's like they're, they're grateful for the reminder and I'm grateful for the work. So I've been really lucky that those doors have opened up. In your, um, a funny thing happened on the way to arbitration. What, what is the most surprising um, discovery that you've made in working with, uh, I presume these are law students or are these lawyers? These are lawyers who are already. Yeah. 
because the funny thing happened on the way to arbitration is uh, is the CLE. So that is mm-hmm. the continuing legal education credits that they need if you're a lawyer, already a lawyer. So I've done that for the American Bar Association numerous times, the Pennsylvania Bar Institute, uh, uh, law firms around the country. And um, what's surprising to the people I do it for is, and, and in general, is people think when you're teaching them improvisation that you're teaching them how to be funny and even when I'm teaching improv at the Walnut Street Theater to actors I never teach anyone how to be funny I mean I always say if you have a sense of humor I'd rather have one than not but it's never about being funny it's always about good communication skills so what can lawyers benefit from Um, how to listen better how to uh, think outside of the box which is just another fancy schmancy way of saying problem solving how to go with the flow, what to do when the unexpected happens, how to be a team player, how to make the other guy look good, because that's what improv is. I mean, in a perfect world, you're performing improv with a team, and it's my, if we're doing it together, it's my job to make you look as good as possible, and it's your job to make me look as good as possible. So unlike being a stand-up comedian, let's say, where it's all about me, 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 if I tell a joke, I want you to laugh, and if you boo, that's bad for me. Improv is the exact opposite, which is why it's such a great uh, conduit for, for team building. It's always about the team. It's always about making the other guy look good. You know, because sometimes you're the pigeon, sometimes you're the statue, right? So it's always the back and forth of supporting your team players. Mm-hmm. And what have you discovered personally about working with that group of people? Sometimes I'm surprised by how um, creative people are. Like when I teach uh, the neuroscientists at the University of Pennsylvania improv and interview skills, um, some of them are very creative. And, you know, there's that thing about right brain, left brain. And and yes, there is some truth to that as well. Um, But like my sister is a scientist, you know, she's she's older, I'm younger. And so we're very true to form. Like she, I always say she's the practical one. I'm the emotional one. the younger one, but the neuroscientists like my sister, you know, they obviously are very smart, intelligent people, but they also have that other um, creative side going too. Not all of them, sometimes you have to coax them out of their shell, but um, the surprise for me is always when somebody who's more practical then reveals, oh, they have this creative side too, because that's the best of both worlds. And what are the exercises really geared towards towards uncovering when you're working with, let's say the neuroscientists, what are you, what are you working to help them access? Well, one thing is to build their confidence um, because who doesn't want to be more confident? Um, There are things that have happened to me on stage where I thought if I didn't have improv in my background, I would have been distraught. I mean, stupid little things, uh, you know, I, I remember being on stage at the Society L Playhouse doing a show called Bo Jest. And in the middle of saying something, a cuffling fell off and rolled around the stage and then stopped. And I remember when that happened, I thought, oh my God, what should I do? Everybody heard it. And then I thought it, in the second, I was thinking, why don't I just do what you do when a cuffling falls? You know, I kept on talking. I went over, I picked it up, put it back on as I'm doing this. And I continued my line. Now, I know that sounds like a small thing, but improv grounds you so that you realize if you make a mistake, big deal. Mistakes are gonna happen. It's always about the way you deal with those mistakes. So that confidence that I build up through years of improv, uh, that's one of the things that I teach the neuroscientists, how to be more confident when you interview for a job, 
either on Zoom or in person. Um, and also how to think outside of the box because sometimes really smart people are very, you know, focused on uh, practicality instead of thinking in a more colorful, um, creative way. So I teach them that. I teach them uh, how, to, how to come out of their shells a little bit and don't be afraid of making a mistake. As I say to them, and I, I say to all my students, no matter what kind of where I'm teaching improv, stretch the rubber band. You know, stretch the envelope, uh, get out of your comfort zone, make a mistake. It's like, no one's gonna die if you make a mistake, you know? And I always tell people what happens in this class stays in this class, it's like Vegas, right? So nobody talks about it afterwards. So really the whole idea is to set people up in a way so that they feel comfortable to make mistakes because that's the way you grow and learn. Like well, what would a good example of say you're an exercise that you're working on with a group of neuroscientists and what is a... a what it, what what would a mistake look like? Is that in their eyes or how, how does one define that? Like what is an example of an exercise that you would do to try to help people mm-hmm. to, I'm, I'm interested in this concept of, of growing more confident. So because um, I always see that as a, as a thing that happens in stages that is, you know, that, 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 yeah, that is based in having successes along the way or certain goals that you reach. And, and I'm interested in, in what an exercise would be that might, might stir that or might. So there's, uh, I'll give you two real quick ones. And this is great for thinking outside of the box. So one is, um, it's called Two-Headed Monster. Uh, I'll play it with you right now. We're going to create a sentence that makes sense using one word at a time. So I want you to think of us as one person, not two. We're a team, right? So we, one of us could say the word I, but we will never say the word we because we're not two people right now. We're one person. So we're just going to create a, sense, a sentence that makes sense. And I'll start with the first word. Whenever I go home, I think that. I should eat. Good. Great. That's, that's too headed. I feel more confident already, Sharon. (laughs) You look more confident. You're sitting up taller. Uh, Yeah. And that's actually one of the things I, I actually, uh, one of the things that I, that I, uh, teach is how to fake confidence. Because here's the thing about (laughs) your body. You can, you can fake it. Uh, and then your body doesn't know that you're, you just do the things that one does when one is. Okay. All right, but wait, I have a question then. All right, so keep going on this, but I'm circling back to that because I see that as a major, like uh, the faking, like, yeah, you fake it till you make it confident, right, thing that we all need to do. But I do think there is this, I'm interested to know what you think about this. There is this um, risk that you take by doing too much of that so that authentically you're really not building your confidence muscles and you're really not getting to the heart of the thing that is making you not confident. Does that make sense? Well, here's the thing. If you, Amy Cuddy, who's a Harvard professor, did this great, uh, she's done TED Talks and she does this thing where your body expresses emotion better than your face. And basically it goes like this. Um, You can pretend you're confident 
And then your body starts to be confident because it doesn't know that you're just doing the things that one does when one is confident. For example, direct eye contact, erect body posture. There's this thing called the Superman or Superwoman pose, depending on who does it, which basically you stand like Superman, you know, with your, your legs. Sure. Yeah. You, you assume the position, right? Yeah. yeah. Which I think is like, super helpful and better than walking around with your shoulders slumped and everything. And I can see how the body responds and then sends signals to the mind, but psychologically I do. uh, Yeah. I think it's an interesting, like at what point does the psychology catch up with the. So that apparently uh, what's been studied is that if you do this position for two minutes, like before something important, like a job interview, or you give a speech, you go on stage as an actor you don't just change the way you feel about yourself. You change the way other per- people perceive you. So this thing about high status, you know, one of the worst things you can do before you give a speech or, or give a talk or go on stage, make a presentation, one of the worst things you can do is this. And I know a lot of people think like, well, that looks like someone's very powerful and busy, right? What are you doing? Working and on your phone? Oh, well, sorry, you can't say- Yeah. So- <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you could see it. <laughs> I can't. I can see it. Sure. What What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing this. So right. So I'm, you're texting someone, or you're tapping on your phone. Well, looking looking at your email, texting. Oh, sure. People, right. Like oh, but when they right. put my name, I'll just stick it in my back pocket. Right. Out there. But yeah. No, because at the risk of sounding new agey, you take all of that negative energy with you. So that is the absolute worst thing you can do before a job. Interview. Or what about if you're a person who just needs to preoccupy themselves with like with some sort of focused energy, a person that needs to doodle or a person that uses does games on their phone or whatever. You know what I mean? I, I think because uh, because certainly things have changed back way back when when we did a show together um, at second stage at the Adrian. And remember, um, oh, give me the name of it, Sharon, the one uh, the two secretaries. There were more secretaries in that, but we were. Oh, Hold, oh. please. Hold, please. Hold, please. Hold, yeah. please. And Rebecca Wright directed it. And, and, uh, right. And Janice Radway was in that show too. Oh my but God. I, I remember those, this is really dating, but you know, you'd go backstage off stage or you'd sit and you do whatever people do, but there weren't, I don't, I don't remember having a phone and I don't remember pulling a phone out. You know, things have changed so much just in terms of how people occupy themselves or focus themselves. So, but getting back to the, if I stand this way long enough, I'm certainly going to be on Broadway. Um, I'm going to practice this because I, in theory, I believe it, right? And I believe your body understands and sends signals. But at some point, you got to fix the psychology there as well. Well, there's a neuroscientist named Dr. Susanna Block, B-L-O-C-H, and she came up with this theory called ALBA emoting, A-L-B-A, and basically it goes like this. If you want to feel a certain way, but you don't feel that way, you can actually trick your body into feeling that way just by mimicking the physical things that happen when one feels that way. So some of it is what I just said to you. You want to feel confident, two minutes in the Superman pose, direct eye contact, erect body posture, two minutes, that's all it takes to change the way you feel about yourself and to, uh, people have told me they've done this after I've instructed them and they said, it's amazing, it worked. And then they've told me really great things about speeches they've given or 
how they did in a test. I'm not saying it's a surefire, hey, you didn't study for a test, you're going to pass it. No, I'm not. No, no, I hear you. I hear you. I, 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 I agree with you. And I totally think like visualize the thing and, and it, you know, it's in that family of you, you need to, you need to send the right signals yeah. out there, right? Sure. To yourself. So is, is getting back to the neuroscientist, is, is that the confidence piece that you're talking about? Just reminding people that their bodies are a really integral part of, 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 of how we move through our days and our worlds. And we need to be cognizant of that. And you're sending your signals, you're sending your body signals all the time. That's so that, that because 94% of all communication is nonverbal. So then you want to say, well, if that's true, and it is, what am I broadcasting to people, my colleagues, my clients, when I'm not even talking, where my arms, what, what, what are they picking up with my arms or my eye contact or my body posture? If 94% of all communication is nonverbal, we're constantly sending out messages that we don't realize. So, yeah, so that's, um, yeah, body language. But you know, yeah, and I totally agree with you. And I think that that's really important. I also long and love a world in which we're all not super standing there with our, you know, like presenting ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I like a world in which there's uniquenesses and that those uniquenesses are accepted. So like, I wonder how, how we come to understand that confidence can be expressed in so many different ways. Right. Do you know what I mean? And, and, uh, to, to sort of really mine what your special gem is or your special way that you present yourselves um, so that we're accustomed to seeing a lot of different manifestations of that. If that, oh Lord, if that makes sense. You know, I just almost knocked my water off the table. Um, low status thing to do there. What's that? <laughs> yeah, it's a very low status. I'm, I'm the queen of low status. So I, I, I do think about that a lot. What are like looking deeper into the, this sort of interesting and unusual ways in which people present themselves. And I guess, you know, running an absurdist theater company, I would be interested in that kind of thing, but I'm, I'm very fascinated. What kinds of, of, um, changes do you see in your either law students or lawyers or your neuroscientists? Is it just, are they reflecting back to you that they feel more confident or are there any surprising um, kind of results that come out of it? I can see it. They don't even have to reflect back to me. I see that it, if I'm te I see it in my uh, Walnut Street Theater comedy improv class. I see it in my improv for lawyers class halfway what I call hump week I didn't make it up obviously what, like, what was that hump hump week halfway through the semester like if it's a 10-week class the fifth week or if it's a six-week class the third week what I see is a change in people's demeanors so people who were very soft they spoke like this all of a sudden they're speaking like this and when usually when I say to people you have to raise the volume of your voice in order to be heard and they'll say something like this I feel like I'm already shaking I say what I feel and they're saying I feel like I'm already shouting by talking like this and I say you're not you're not talking loud enough so what happens during that mm -hmm. period they speak louder they're more confident in the way they walk into a room I can see it in their body language yeah and obviously like all the things we're talking about are true for our culture so in other words um one of the things I have in my 
I hate to call it a PowerPoint because it's, it's, uh, it's my multimedia presentation because it's much more interesting than a PowerPoint. But one of the things that I use in my funny thing happened on the way to arbitration is there's a little clip of when we're talking about body language, when Bill Clinton was the president and he invited to Camp David Echad Barak, who was the uh, leader of Israel and uh, Yasser Arafat from the PLO, the three of them were doing a press conference. They're standing outside, the cameras are clicking away, the reporters are asking questions. And then they say, Bill Clinton says, thank you, everyone. Uh, we have to go in now. And the three of them turn and they walk towards the door to start their meeting. And a really interesting thing happens when they get to the door. Bill Clinton, being the good host that he was trying to be, opens the door and he, he goes like this to usher through, you know, Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat. Well, neither of them move. Uh, they all go like this. They all, they all position. They all do this physical dance. And Bill Clinton realizes after a few seconds, they're not going to go first. So he decides to go through the door thinking, well, they'll follow. So then what happens is Ehad Barak goes like this and Yasser Arafat goes like this and they go back and forth for about 10 seconds. And finally, PLO guy, Yasser Arafat goes through the door, Ehad Barak from Israel goes through the door. And what I learned later is that that little physical dance was because in the Middle East, whoever goes through the door last has control of the situation and the meeting, the body language, that was that dance for that reason. So I obviously all the stuff I'm teaching applies to what we think of as high status and, and power, you know, testosterone power, body language here in the United States. But in the Middle East, that's the reason they went into that little power dance because each one wanted to be the last person to go through the door so that they would be seen as being in control of that meeting. Which is a rule, a set of rules that Bill Clinton didn't know, or that President, you know, didn't know. So, so that's interesting. That if improvisation is designed to kind of allow you to listen and to respond and to be in communication with your partner, what do you do when you don't know the rules? Like if somebody's making up the, you know, and and we're in that society all the time, where we each have a different set of rules, really, about what's important to us, or right about what we value, about what status means to us. So. Um, I guess it, it could be hard if you're in a situation as he, as, as it sounds like Clinton was, where he really didn't, he didn't have the key to the rules in that setting. Well, he did, he did the right thing. He did what he thought he should do. And that definitely was the right thing for him. Like in improvisation, one of the things I tell people when they say, okay, what if the audience gives us a suggestion and we don't know what that is? Or what if they say, okay, this is a scene between a priest and a parishioner and I don't know what it means to be a priest or I don't know what I should say. You know, in any good acting class, they'll always tell you, play what you know. So you might not know what it means to be a priest, but maybe you know what it means to be a rabbi. So take something and, and, and play what you know. But the other great thing about improv is since it's always about the team effort, and making the other guy look good, stand back for a minute, let the other guy go first. Maybe they know exactly what is going on. So take your lead from the other person who hopefully will be there to, to help you. You know, Don't feel like you have to speak first. Uh, take a step back, maybe that person knows what they're doing You know, and figure it out together. So that's the beautiful thing mm -hmm. about improv. It's a team effort and, you, and in a perfect world, you're there to make each other look good. And that's why sometimes you're going to shine. Sometimes your partner's going to shine. 
Right. I wanted to circle back to that, this, the idea of you're there to make the other person look good. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that? What in improv um, and sketch work, uh, always it's it's never about leaving the other person in the dust. It's never about look how great I am and I can't help if that person doesn't keep up. You know, I tell people when I'm coaching actors all the time and, I, and we talk about auditions back in the day when auditions used to be in person, I would say, listen, if you get called in with somebody else to audition, so two, two people are auditioning together and you're the veteran and you know what you're doing, and you're with a newbie who has no idea, maybe they're nervous, maybe it's their first time. First of all, just be kind because that's the best thing in the world to be. And secondly, be as supportive as you can of that person because I can guarantee you that the people who are watching you audition, they see exactly what's going on. And if they see that you can take care of that person who apparently is nervous or new or doesn't know so much, that says a lot about you, that you would be a team player and support that person. So number one, it's just the right way to be anyway. It's a good thing to be kind to people because you were that person at one point. You were that person who didn't know anything. So it's always about making the other guy look good. And, and in a perfect world, we should be doing that for each other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Do you, is that your, been your experience in auditions? I know I've done that for people. I haven't always seen that spin on the receiving end. That was my question. <laughs> I have, yeah, I, I, I've not always had it back, but, um, but you know, you know pretty well, you know, what's going on, what's happening right away. So, and you know also what's going on in the minds of the casting director. I mean, they can see things like, you know, you see when, when people are not being supportive or they're taking ownership over the whole thing and they're not giving you a chance. It, yeah. You don't have to explain that, right? Everybody can see that. Um, so I, I always feel it only makes you look better to be that person who's supportive. Because you, you hope that, you, you know, obviously you're out there, you want the job, even though you don't want to look like you want the job. But in the end, of course, you want the job. So you hope that the people around you will make you look good. I had an audition once in New York for something. Um, and, and I was with three other women in the, in the scene. And I thought, one, one of the, I thought for sure I'll never get this, this role because one of the women, she didn't know any of her lines. All the copy had been sent in advance and she didn't have it for whatever reason. I don't know if she had it and she didn't look at it or whatever. She didn't know anything that was going on. When the casting director gave feedback and we could do it a second time, she wasn't listening and she didn't do any things he asked her to do. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh no, I'm one of like four people here. I'm never going to get this because, you know, she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. So I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing. And you can't be responsible for anybody. You can always be only be responsible for yourself. Well, I was shocked when I got a call back. And when I got a call back at, at, in New York to this casting director, the people who I was in the scene with for the second audition, were none of the three people. So isn't it interesting that I got called back and none of those other people did? So what I'm saying is all you can do is try your best and hope that it shines through. Yeah, it is kind of one of the, the interesting dynamic that happens in an audition waiting room is, is one of the things that in a Zoom audition waiting room, one doesn't have to, to manage. There's so many interesting changes that auditioning by way of Zoom 
right. has has managed some of them some of them really really useful and helpful i think and some presenting you know presenting different challenges also in the way that you don't have to uh you know you don't you don't have to get on a bus you don't have to get on a train or all all of the things that are involved in sort of like you know, um, I want to just get a, a couple of questions in here for you, Sharon. Um, in those uh, early self-employed years, you were taking acting classes, et cetera. How did you how, how were you making a living at that point? Was it were you, um, you you mentioned before that you had in your career uh, in public relations that you had some savings, you know, or you had you had put money away? Is that is that what you did or did you do something? So sometimes I was temping on the side. So that I could, uh, so that I could t- still take classes and act. Other times, I got a, I uh, was trained as a tour guide in in Philadelphia. So, and it's so funny, Tina, and I'm sure you felt like this in your life too. The things that we learn that help us later. So, all of those ten years in public relations that came in handy when I become an actress and I have to start marketing myself, sending out. You know, I used to send out press releases and public service announcements. Now I'm sending out. Uh, five by seven postcards. Oh, here's what I've been up to in the last month. One commercial for this, one print ad for that. So keeping your mind in, in keeping your name in, in people's mind. Um, another thing I did was I was a tour guide and that was great. Talk about using things later because I found out in my training all about colonial Philadelphia. And so now I do a show called You Betsy Your Life, where I come in as Betsy Ross and I talk about colonial Philadelphia. And then I play an interactive game show with the audience and I quiz them about is that crack in the Liberty Bell really a crack? Did Betsy Ross really sew the flag? And other things uh, about colonial Philadelphia. And uh, and I've done that show with a guy who does a wonderful Ben Franklin. So that I got money as a tour guide and then, but it was like acting, you know, I was, I was like doing a part and then that later evolved into a real acting job. So mm-hmm. a little bit of everything. Yeah. When are the times or the experiences that you've had along the way where you felt you were really challenged and in the spot, like, like this is the spot I need to be in. And when I say spot, I mean, like, what was the job you were doing? Or was it on stage? Was it on Saturday Night Live? Was it on the Today Show? What, what was it television? Was it film? What, what? Well, there were three things that come to mind and they were all different venues. The first one was I was hired. It was a crime drama, a reenactment. I was hired to play a woman. This is a tragic story, which unfortunately is true. So it took place in Delaware. A a woman's husband on a Sunday was inside his home watching TV with a beer in his hand, watching a football game. And some maniac breaks into the house, kills the husband. And then when the wife comes in, she had been outside mowing the lawn. He knocks her out wraps her up in a, in a rug and then puts her in the trunk of his car and drives off with her where he keeps her as a hostage for four days. And they finally found her. They found the guy. The guy was sent to jail. Anyway, we're reenacting this. So here I am on the set and the di- director comes up to me and says, okay, at this point, he's, he's carrying you out and he's going to put you in the trunk of the car and then he's going to drive away. And I swear you, Tina, if I didn't have improv training, and, and my confidence level wasn't more, I never would have asked this question. I said, so is he gonna close the trunk of the car? And they said, yeah. And I said, 
So I'm a little bit claustrophobic. Could he, could you shoot it so that he doesn't actually close the trunk while I'm in there? He said, no, I'm sorry, the way we're doing it, we, we have to, he has to close the trunk. And I said, okay, where's the key to the trunk? And this is exactly what the production assistant did. The key, the key, wait, I'll be right back. And she runs. Five minutes later, she comes back holding the key. Here it is, like she found it. So they were gonna close the trunk without knowing where the key was. That was number one. And number two, two real highway patrolmen who actually arrested this guy who killed the husband, they were on the set. And I walked over to them and I said, listen, I just found out that they have to wrap me in a blanket, in a, um, a rug and put me in the trunk of the car. They're gonna close the car and they have the key. But if I'm not out of there, like in five seconds after they close it, could you just make sure that you get me out of there? And they said, sure. They were two highway patrolmen who just happened to be involved with the real case. And they were on the set shooting that day because they were going to be interviewed later. And so when we shot it, that's exactly what happened. They closed the, the guy playing the murderer was a very nice guy and he heard everything. And so they closed it. The director promised me I'll be out of there. He said, as soon as that trunk closes, count to five, you will be out of there. And he put me in the trunk, they closed the trunk. One, two, I'm counting. By the time I got to four, the trunk was open. I was fine. All I'm saying is I never would have taken care of myself in that way and asked those questions if I didn't feel more confident. And if I, I would have felt like, oh, I don't wanna make a big deal. I wanna be someone they wanna work with. So standing up for yourself, is, is that's one of the things that improv does. It makes you more confident and that, confidence also was exhilarating when I was performing in front of 500 people at the Gordon Center in Owings Mill, Maryland. Uh, over the last 10 years in Old Jews Telling Jokes. I love that show. I love singing funny songs on stage, but I've never played to an audience of 500 people. And I want to tell you, when they started applauding at a joke I told, the applause was so deafening. I've never heard 500 people applaud at the same time. I actually thought I was losing my hearing cause it sounded like when your ears pop, when you're in a plane. And I was like, oh my God, I can't hear because they're all applauding at the same. That was an amazing experience. And then my third like uh, wonderful thing that, that again, and, and this is all because of my confidence with improv is my, um, time that I was on lucky enough to be on Saturday Night Live four times, but the, the, the first time was magical because it was the first time and I was on stage when they say live from New York, it's Saturday night. I got chills down my spine because all I could think of is I am standing right where Gilda Radner stood. And then the, this, the second best time on SNL was when I was in a sketch uh, with Kanye West. Uh, that that uh, the brilliant um, Seth Meyers, who was the head writer at that time, had written um, a, a, about a contest, a pumpkin contest. I, it was a Midwest fair. I was a mom. Bill Hader played the county judge and the mayor, and he was about to give my daughter a blue ribbon for a pumpkin contest. So Kanye West comes into this Midwest West fair out of nowhere and he goes, hell no. And he snatches that blue ribbon out of my daughter's hand. And he says, this belongs to me. And it was, you know, in hindsight, when I would tell the story, I would say, this is such a great parody of when Kanye West took the award away from Taylor Swift at the MTV awards. And doesn't Kanye West have a great sense of humor that he let himself be parodied like this? So guess what? 
this year, the last year and a half, I'm at home watching Seth Meyers, Late Night with Seth Meyers. I love Seth Meyers. I think he's a brilliant monologuist and comedian. And he's talking about the sketch I'm in with Kanye West. And then he says that show it on a show. And then he says this. Can you believe we wrote that sketch in 2007 and Kanye West didn't rip the award out of uh, Taylor Swift's hand until 2009? He says, can you believe that we probably gave him the idea to do that? And I was floored because in my memory, I thought, oh, Kanye West has a good sense of humor about what happened. It never happened yet when they wrote the sketch, which was two years before it actually happened. So all of those things that are so vivid in my mind from being uh, on a video shoot and, and performing live on stage and the two SNL moments, they're all things that I felt, I feel never would have happened if I didn't have the confidence that I gained from improvisation and saying yes and to opportunities. Is there, it sounds like the moment with a very large audience uh, on stage is a, was a, a certainly a, an amazing experience like hearing the, you know, the opening, the opening lines of Saturday Night Live. Is, is, is there an experience that you want to go after again and again and again? Like, do you, I assume, you know, Old Jews Telling Jokes hasn't been, has, you know, you haven't been touring with that over the pandemic. Is that the thing that you miss being on stage and, and hearing that applause and that immediate response to? Yeah, that is what I love to do. So, you know, it's lovely to shoot a commercial and I feel so grateful and thankful that I've been able to do that. And in the last year, like right before the shutdown, I, I did that national TV commercial, which was so lovely. And I love working video, but nothing beats hearing that that response from the audience and the laughter and the applause. And I had it this week when I was doing my, I do a show called Knock Knock Jews There, a Talmudic take on comedy, all about the importance of laughter and comedy and Judaism. And I did it in person at Shenandoah uh, Retirement Community and there were 125 people in the room. And I was like, oh, I really miss performing in front of people because the laughter, I mean, I've been doing the same show on Zoom. I've been doing that show around the country on Zoom. But you know, on Zoom, you have to ask people to mute themselves because you don't wanna hear it barking dogs and you don't wanna hear it ringing telephones, but I can't hear their laughter. So it's a, you know, what do you do? If you let, if you hear the laughter, then you'll also hear the interruptions. So to be in a room with 125 people laughing like that and applauding, yeah, it brought back those memories of oh, this was what it feels like when people respond right away. And it's such a lovely feeling. And oh my gosh, it's, it's so interactive and it's so meaningful. How did you handle that on Zoom? Um, did you ever try any shows where you let, you let people stay unmuted and, and so you could get their laughter to sort of see? I mean, did you ever test that out or did you just realize early on, like, this is not going to fly, so we need to... I think I realized early on it's not going to fly. And the way I realized it is I would attend other people's like seminars or whatever it was. And I heard phones ringing and I heard dogs barking. No one loves dogs more than I do, but <laughs> they can't get in the way of a punchline. It's so, like outdoor theater, really, because you never know what's going to fly into the, exactly. which is a wonderful thing, but it's constructed to take into account orchestras and planes and Exactly. Well, it doesn't, yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily take it into account, but you expect it. 
Exactly. And one of my clients who I did the, the um, I did it for the uh, universe, uh, Brandeis University National Committee. I did um, my show, uh, Knock Knock Jews there. And uh, she said to me, I can't believe that you didn't hear the laughter. You missed that because you asked everyone to, she said, you were great. And we were laughing so hard. And I said to her, I know that because I saw you laughing and I saw all of the people laughing. So I knew it was going over. But again, it's like I had to make a decision about do I want to hear the laughter? But I might also hear the telephones ringing and the dogs barking. And then you get into the punchline and then you're, you know. So uh, yeah. And I guess the upside of that as well is that in those rare shows for you, Sharon Geller, where maybe, you know, the house is quiet, you know you don't hear that either, which is, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's two sides to it, but I, I certainly see for comedy, how I think the challenges on zoom are just, you know, are just are enormous. Um, oh my gosh, it's five fifty-five, but I want to get one more question in here, uh, in here for you, Sharon Geller. Um, if I assume, and this, this sounds like it could, we could go on a little while about this Sharon Geller. I, I, but if I assume this, if I assume the Superman pose yeah. and then go on with my life, how long do I stay confident? That's my question for you. I'm just going to walk around South Street and be like, yeah, right. <laughs> I like it. See? Um, here's a- yeah, how long does this, this phenomenon last? Well, my suggestion is this. Anytime you want to feel confident before you do something, make a speech, go out on a date, whatever it is, assume the Superman pose for two minutes and you'll be fine for like an hour or two, right? Now, I think everybody can find time in their lives to do this pose for two minutes before everything. So don't feel like, oh, I did it yesterday. Now I have to do it again today. <laughs> it's only two minutes. I'm so, just going to do the show like this. Yeah, right. So just just do the show like this. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I mean, I love the idea that the brain like receives signals, right? And it gets it. And if we're running around like uh, whatever, um, it's not it's not sending the right signal um, in the same way. If we same if we think the same negative thought, we're, we're certainly it's, it, it, you know, it's the opposite of envisioning that parking space in front of the building that you so covet, you know, but I, I do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to I'm going to work on this, Sharon. One of the lawyers who took my funny thing happened on the way to arbitration. Guess what? I did it on Zoom. And that's really challenging to do a CLE on Zoom. And you know what she said to me? I can't believe that I tried your superwoman pose before I had a meeting with a client. And do you know what? Before I walked into the room, I did this for two minutes. When I walked in the room, my client actually said, what's going on with you? So she says, what do you mean? She says, you look so different. How? She says. I don't know, you, you just look like brighter, like you're full of confidence or something. Like did something happen in your life? She said to me, Sharon, I couldn't believe that someone actually said to me, I look more confident because I did this for two minutes. It works. And I said, I know it works. <laughs> That's why I'm teaching it. So yeah, it really does work. All right, Robin Rodriguez, I want you to, um, I, I want you to, the next time I see you for dinner at Marathon, I want you to be I want you to be using your superwoman pose and then Sharon and I will check up on you and you can, you can mirror it back to me as well. That's right. Oh, Sharon Geller. I learned so much that I've never learned in this last week and a half or week and a half, year and a half walking with you every day, discussing how we are going to make it out of this pandemic, both on the stage and off. And I can't even believe, I thought we had been talking for maybe 25 minutes. So um, it just goes to show that, 
you have so much to share. And thank you so much for the many decades of work that you've done here in Philadelphia and New York around the country. And I am wishing you such good, uh, good vibrations to get back out on the stage with all the shows that, because I know your lies, your eyes just, your lies don't, your lies don't light up. Your eyes light up when you, when you, when you talk about how much you love being on the stage. So I feel like uh, we're all just rooting for all of that to happen, ha- happen, you know, happening uh, very quickly and um, bringing more good, good vibrations and improvisations, improvisational skills, improvisational skills and Superman poses to the world at large. Sharon Geller, ladies and gentlemen, Sharon, thank you so much. I will see you for a walk very soon. And um Keep on keeping on, Sharon. You are a real legend and you are an inspiration to all of us. So thank you. Thanks so much, Tina, for having me. You're my pleasure. And thanks to all of you for being with us. We're going to take a little hiatus next week for Labor Day weekend, and then we'll be back during the Fringe Festival. Lane Savadov from Egopo Theater is going to be on. We've got all kinds of fun guests during the Fringe. So I hope you'll be back with us. I am trying to remember when that first show is, but we'll send you out an email, email so you'll know. I think I want to say September 11th is our first show. And until then, uh, just have a great week ahead. We look forward to seeing you back at the table during the Fringe Festival. And thanks so much for being a loyal audience here as we all make our way back out onto the performing arts stages around the country. Have a great week ahead. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.